The audiobook-loving 2023 series is sponsored in part by authors. DJ Krimmer, who weaves contemporary romance stories filled to the brim with imperfect alcohols and witty females whose love conquers every hurdle thrown their way. In her books, representations of the imperfect sides of life are not hidden in the shadows. They're front and center, a reminder that everyone deserves a happy ending. Tana Stone not only loves to read sci-fi romance, she also writes them as well. With the tagline, alien abduction has never been so hot. It's no wonder readers and listeners love her stories of the sexy aliens and the independent heroines that bring them to their knees. Landon Beach wrote every audiobook narrator's worst fear, being kidnapped by obsessed fans who are determined to have them perform their novel in a one-of-a-kind psychological thriller, Narrator. We, the listeners, experience every twisted moment alongside Sean Frost, the narrator. Or do we? PJ Fiala writes military romantic suspense and contemporary romance with heroines that are strong, and the heroes are sexy. Fill your TBR list with stories where bikes are built, family bonds are strengthened, and love ignites, when the only team that can handle the job is the one that doesn't exist. And GHOST stands for Government Hidden Ops Specialty Team. They eliminate the threat when no one else can. Learn more about these and all of our sponsors by visiting the audiobook-loving 2023 series landing page at Viviana Enchantress of Books website. That's www.vivianaenchantressofbooks.com. June is Audiobook Month. Join Viviana, the Enchantress of Books, and the Audiobook Lovin' series as she celebrates the authors and narrators who bring your favorite stories to life. Not only will this month be packed with exciting guest podcasts full of all things books, but stick around after each episode for some special information about this year's giveaway and more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 9, Episode 2 of this year's Audiobook Loving Series. Today, I am chatting with narrator and coach Sean Pratt. How are you, Sean? Very good. Thank you very much. You know, we've been kind of talking, and I see you all doing all these cool things from, you know, coaching and mentoring and teaching and you know, all these other travels. So I'm excited to get to know you better here. So why don't we yeah, start absolutely. by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been narrating, and how you got into all this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> born and raised in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. My family's been there since before statehood, a uh, long time. And uh, really blue collar growing up. My dad was a fireman. My mom was a secretary. There's three of us kids. I'm the middle child, the misunderstood artistic oh. middle child. But I started acting in the theater at school and with the local theater groups when I was around 10, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. And I did that all through high school. Although I didn't do my very first professional acting job until I was a senior in college in Santa Fe, New Mexico, getting my BFA in acting. Funny story, we were forbidden to work professionally when the school was in session, but there was an Italian Western filming in the area. And on a lark, I auditioned for it. And I got a part as a cowboy for a week, got a couple lines in this film. And I had like really long hair and I had, you know, the, the outfit, look good on the outfit and I can ride a horse and shoot a gun and so on. So I was just sick for a week and I just disappeared <laughs> right, like two weeks before graduation. But yeah, my background is in classical theater. That's what I, I went off to New York to do. 
I was, I did classical theater off Broadway and with the regional theater circuit from the age of say 20 through 35. And then around that time in 35, I left New York to go to Washington DC to sort of start my life over again. I had met my girlfriend at the time, Shannon Parks, who became my wife. And now I am, we're divorced, but uh, we're still very good friends. Uh, I remember when I moved down there, I had a bunch of theater work lined up. And when I got there, all of the theater work fell through and I was totally at loose ends. Didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So I remembered a conversation I'd had back in 1994, two years before I moved down. I'd done a play at the Shakespeare Theater there. And there was a guy who's now a playwright in New York City. We were, we were doing a play together. And um, I, one day in the green room, I said, well, what do you do when you're not working? And he said, well, I narrate audiobooks. I was like, what is that? I have no idea what that is. So over a cup of coffee, he basically told me sort of the overall sketch of, you know, this is back in the days when you used to narrate on VHS tapes. And, you oh, know, wow. this is before the industry really exploded. It was getting ready. Okay. And, and David and I really hit it off. And he said, listen, if you ever decide to, you know, if you ever come down here and you need some, you know, want to go further on this, just give me a call. Well, I called him and he introduced me to a man named Grover Gardner, who's a real icon in the narration industry. He works for Blackstone. He's narrated well over a thousand books, if not more. And I went over to Grover's house and we had an all day conversation over multiple cups of coffee. And he should really, he did a deep dive and we made a little demo and he said, well, you know, I'll see what's going on. But the, the minute I saw that he was working at home narrating books and making that kind of money. I, you know, as a theater actor, I never made any real money and I was really at loose ends. And so I sort of, I don't know, cajoled slash threatened slash bullied him into helping <laughs> me getting started. And uh, he, you know, I wore him down to the point he finally called Blackstone Audio and Books on Tape. And he said, oh, for the love of God, send me a book. This guy's driving me nuts. <laughs> so... At that time, Grover was single. He's since married and has a, a daughter. And um, But he, in his house, he had converted some of the bedrooms into little booths and studios. Oh, wow. So how it worked is you would go over to his house and sign up for like a three-hour chunk of time. And you got to use the booth then. And you gave him, you know, a cut of your check just to cover the expense. And the first book I ever did was Blackstone Audio, Cabbages and Kings by O. Henry. You always remember your first time. <laughs> um, and I had a, a, a monitor outside. Bernadette uh, Flagler is her name. She's still a narrator. And basically, in those days, you worked, like I said, on VHS tape. The system was called ADAT. And you had a little, like, remote, like a shuttle system, a remote control that ran outside the booth. And so you had to manipulate the recording equipment as well. Oh. Right? So my very first, there was never in a studio. You know, I, I, of the 1,100 books I've narrated, I'm not kidding, maybe five have been in a booth or in a studio, rather. All have been on my own. So I got my time, you know, go into the thing. Hi, Bernadette. She's outside on the headset. So she's sort of proofing in real time with me, right? And I started recording. And in that first session and working for three hours, I did precisely 15 minutes of finished material. So when we finish, I thank her for her time. I get in my car and I drive back to Alexandria, Virginia, where we were living at the time. 
And I walk in the door to our the house we were renting, drop my bag, and literally collapse on the on the rug in the front mm. room. And Tiana came over to me. She looked down. She said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "This is so much fucking harder than I ever thought <laughs> it was going to be." Yep. And it was it was insane. I was exhausted. I was at the very you know, but I had nothing else in front of me. So I went back the next day and I did 20 minutes. And the next day after that, I did 25 minutes. And then out of that, I got rolling slowly but surely. Um, the, and the industry was totally different than it is today. You know, the fact that Grover could pick up the phone and get me some work like that was extraordinary. And so my first two clients were Books on Tape and Blackstone Audio. And, you know, I was maybe doing one book a month for each of them, short pieces. And then... In 98, I finally was getting out of theater. Um, we were planning on getting married and eventually having a child and moving into a house, you know, buying a house, having a child. She's 22 now. Yeah. Um, and um, I went back to those clients and I said, look, I need to work full time now. I'm just going to be doing film and TV. And that stuff is a day here and a day there. And I said, I'll, I'll narrate anything that nobody else wants. And so they began to send me nonfiction, which is where I discovered again how much I loved nonfiction because that's my specialty as a narrator and as a performer. But because I was the new guy, they were sending me material that was running 10, 20, 30 hours long. So I really got a trial by fire with doing nonfiction. But in the end, career-wise, it was the smartest move I have ever made. Um, it really fits my temperament i always tell people narrating audiobooks is not about necessarily about talent it's about temperament to have the temperament to sit in the booth hour after hour after hour to do that and so that's how i got into the industry to answer your question yeah though that's it's amazing how things have changed and evolved now i mean i don't know for those that are maybe listening that don't know what a vh tape is google it <laughs> because it's <laughs> yeah. you know, i mean i still have my uh pinocchio disney um vinyl that we got back in the 80s i think that was like the first quote-unquote audiobook of sorts that i ever listened to as a, as a yep. toddler in the late 80s and stuff like that so it's and, and now those are back in style but you know it's amazing but i, I was going to ask that and thank you for saying about usually we kind of ask the like okay of all the genres you know how did you land in that one and it's perfect it seems for you I mean you really love the nonfiction stuff but that's also kind of the temperament you, you know you were saying because that's a different style of narrating versus how romance narrators narrate or science fiction kind of goes more into mm -hmm. or even horror how do you uh, what do you think are the biggest like aha like differences for those that may want to try to figure out which genre fits best for them? Well, that's a good question. I think, well, if you are a performer in your past, like a theater or film actor, you're going to love fiction because you get to play all the characters. And who doesn't want to play all the characters? You know, you finally get to do them right. You know, it's like when you're in the play, like <laughs> he's terrible. I could do so, you know, whatever. Hey, oh, that guy's terrible. I could do his thing. Now you have to play all the parts. Um, and I really enjoyed that initially with fiction. But what, what happened was, for me personally, I was doing Westerns and science fiction and fantasy and, and mysteries and romance and all these things. And I, you know, for a while, I worked for a company out of Albuquerque. Um, I did four books a month for them. 
one was a western one was a mystery one was a like a tom clancy knockoff series and one was a sci-fi thing and it was four books a month they were each exactly six hours long because that was four 90-minute cassettes and they sold them at truck stops and uh, so the pieces were edited down to fit that running time but the problem was for me personally after i got a handle you know you spend your first 50, at least your first 50 books learning what the hell you're doing as a narrator, really. And then beyond that, for me personally, was the stories started to feel repetitive, and they were. They were formulaic. And I understand that's why people love to read those things. But as a performer, you know, you're like, oh, look, the butler did it <laughs> again, you know, and... Oh, they got back together. Who knew? Who could have seen that coming? And that was my personal take on it. You know, because by this time I'm, I'm in my thirties, mid thirties. That means I've been actually acting twenty five years already. So those stories were sort of repetitive. And what I love about nonfiction is, I'm always learning something. You know, do you want to know about Wall Street investments? or international investments, I can tell you. Would you like to understand how the brain functions as you age? I can tell you. You want to know about meteorites? Would you like to know about, uh, you know, dealing with schizophrenia in your family? I can tell you. I've done books on those things. Mm -hmm. And they're absolutely fascinating. And I tell people all the time that I'm really good at a cocktail party because I know a little bit about just about everything. Yep. You know, and that's the thing that keeps me engaged constantly in nonfiction, just from the intellectual point. Mm -hmm. From the performance standpoint, because of the way I teach it and perform it, I look at the nonfiction piece as a as a one man show. Okay, you know, so it's me performing in front of an audience. That's the way I sort of set it up with my students. It's an acting construct. A lot of people think that nonfiction equals non-acting, and that's not the case. Okay. And so you have to ground it in an acting, you know, who are you, where are you, who are you talking to? And once you do that, the book becomes your script or the transcript of what you said, you could say. And and so it's like getting to sort of stretch the metaphor. It's like I got to play Hamlet or this particular Hamlet for 10 hours and no one will ever get to play that part again. No one that book will never be re-recorded. So that's one of the things I like about it. it. I get to live inside the author's intellect and I get to take the audience on that journey of them discovering these things and the emotions they feel about as they go through their own journey in the book. Yeah. And, and thank you for saying that. A lot of people have that misconception that fiction is literally just sitting here, reading the words and blah, blah, you know, very monotone. Oh. And, and, and that's where sometimes when someone's starting in the career of narration there they might veer off of that genre of sorts and right. um but it really is i mean how are there books that are like that absolutely <laughs> i mean there are books like that in well, romance, you know, but yeah you know the um uh oscar wilde once said that there is no such thing as a moral or immoral book books mm -hmm. are either well written or they're not and and that's true i've written i've i've like I said, when I do narrow nonfiction, I get to live inside the author's intellect. And what you discover is you might have an author who has a really clever idea, but doesn't know how to explain it very well. Or you might have an author who's going back to an old idea that's been around a long time, 
but has a unique perspective and can explain it in a very interesting way. And so you, you know, you get, you do enough of this kind of material and you perform it, you go, oh, I see this guy, you know, he's, it's his first book. And, you know, he's a, he's a consultant or whatever. And he's basically just throwing his ideas on the wall to see what sticks. Or you'll get a book by someone who's writing in you know, a self-help piece or a business book. And this is their third or fourth or fifth book. And you can just see the clarity in the writing and their thinking. And so you, and you have to, you have to, this is where I come in as a performer to help them tell their story really well, because you know, a great narrator can tell a good story, even if the author didn't write one. Yes, that is true. So, <laughs> there have been many know. times I've been eyeball reading and I'm like, nope, not happening, not <laughs> working. And then I go, WWW, is this shit on uh, in audio? And boom, I'm like, thank you. And it's an entirely different experience that yeah. even even when I get to that place where I was like, fuck no, it, it just, I'm like, oh, that was the part. Well, okay, the performance just made it different. Almost like your the narrator's take on it just like changed my perspective. So I totally understand that. And sometimes yeah. people ask me, well, even when I was, I've been a performer my whole life and, you know, I know that I'm not curing cancer and I'm not, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing something seismic in the in the greater scheme of a you know of something but i do have an effect on people I, what i find interesting as a performer and you know picking up on your thing that sometimes people can't read a book but when they listen to it they actually get it or are entertained you know the yardstick i i use and i teach my students is there's only one measurement about or yardstick to measure an audiobook and that's really simple was the performance entertaining because if it's entertaining, you'll stay with it and you'll stay inside the book, right? You won't get bored. You won't get distracted. And I get emails all the time from people who've listened to a nonfiction piece I've done. And they'll say uh, something to the, you know, like, I tried reading this book, but it was very dense and I couldn't follow it. Or it was very, the material was very, you know, triggering or whatever. But your performance was entertaining and it helped me hear the, the author's message. And that message has really helped me. So I feel like with nonfiction, you know, just as when you do a fiction piece, if you entertain someone, you make them laugh or make them cry or whatever, that's out of their own life. But in nonfiction, I feel like there's, you know, frankly, sometimes a higher calling to help someone understand why is their father dealing, you know, their father who's dealing with dementia, how they can deal with that. They pick up a book that I've narrated. And if I've done my job and made it entertaining, uh, which is a pretty broad, you know, state, you know, entertaining can be a lot of things, but so they stay in the book and they learn from the book and it helps them. I think, how great is that? What a great opportunity I have to help somebody. And I really do take it as a calling. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, there is, you know, in the community of audiobooks, we've always talked about how the, you know, a book, whether it's regardless of the genre, the listener has taken something away from it, whether it's discovering that they really, really, really do want to go to a particular place and travel, or right. they 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 saw a relationship that brought back memories and they want to maybe revisit, whether it's a relationship, a family or friendship or even significant others. And even in romance, discovering that, you know, you, you have a kink and that's okay. And that's what that's called. Got it. I just thought right. it was a little quirkiness. Right. Um, 
or mm -hmm. makes you or makes you a smarter or savvy business person in yes. your pursuits of your own career. Absolutely. Yeah. There've been I've been I've listened to a lot of books when it comes down to, you know, learning what my strength like strength finders uh here's corporate talk and uh you know figuring out how I what motivates me and figuring out how that makes me then work better faster. And I'm a learner. So it's one of those, as if I'm learning something, I'm excited, I'm happy, but that's also why I become yeah. a SME in a lot of different things. And then finding another book that helps me manage that. So I don't become a business part, you know, business owner of 50,000 businesses <laughs> because I learned something <laughs> new. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have not, I have not picked up epoxy uh, resin making because of that. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Yeah. Hey, I learned that about myself. I'm like, not doing it, Viv. Not going <laughs> to do it. <laughs> um, But I mean, it, again, it, it goes back to the being entertained. A lot of people, when you hear that word, they think the dancing and, the, you know, like the jazz hands and things like that. And it's truly just keeping the engagement where you're able to do the dishes, but still pay attention. And, right. and, and, yeah. and you're learning something that you you find exciting, engaging. And yeah, entertainment, sometimes entertainment just boil in nonfiction. Sometimes it just boils down to clarity of message. You know, am I being clear with the storytelling to explain this? And that is enough to be entertained. You know, yeah, the term entertained is very broad. Yeah. It's not just cracking jokes or doing a, an action scene. It might be explaining a for the first time you really hear the author you know, the author explained the concept. And if it's narrated well, the listener goes, oh, I get it now. This means that with this and this. And they couldn't get it before because trying to read it, you know, maybe the sentence was four lines long and it was just too convoluted. But a good performance, a good vocal performance, well, you know, that builds the architecture of the sentence. They finally, they get it. And when I get those emails, I save them. I save, I, I've been saving them for a while now. You know, people say, I understand, you know, this this book really helped me deal with this particular issue. And thank you for helping me by entertaining me, by keeping me in the book. I learned something important. And even with us now, I mean, learning that, you know, we have individuals that have dyslexia or ADHD and sometimes they can't sit there and focus on, you know, because right. multitasking is important for us, those that are non-divergent and being able to listen to books sometimes, it makes us more sense in our heads when we're listening yes. versus when we're the eyeball reading and we're also not feeling guilty that we should be productive and doing adulting things while we're, you know, learning something new or listening to something that's just uh, an, ex you know, an escapism. A lot of times when we think of audiobooks, we think of the two types of narration style in the sense of either you're sitting there and you're just reading me the book and then the full on performance where you have all the different accents and the tones and the characters all have different voices. And usually with nonfiction, people think, oh, you're just going to sit there and just read me your book in your normal voice. And that's it. No, no. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, one of the this is and I, I don't know if you were this was on your agenda or not, but, you know, one of the many, many flaws with AI, um, you know, is that AI does not have an opinion about what it is. It is narrating. It can say the words. It can understand the structure of a sentence. But it doesn't have an opinion, and I need—I know they've got these little new plugins now. Like you can sound really excited, or you can be very sad. But the problem is, is that you can't just set that as a marker and then let it go. And the, if you 
this this comes from years of doing text analysis and doing the classics, whether it's Shakespeare or Sophocles or whatever. When you have a character talking about something in a monologue, they go through a series of ideas they're discussing in the model. To be or not to be, that is the question kind of stuff. And if you look carefully as an actor, you're saying, how does the character feel about that particular idea they're discussing? And that becomes your acting choice. Okay, it's acting one on one. It's not what you say; it's how you say it. The subtext of the emotion. Well, if you take the time to look at nonfiction, if a, a correctly written paragraph is an examination of one little idea, and if you learn to look carefully enough, the author will tell you their opinion or how they feel about yeah. that topic, and that alters the read enough. It changes it enough that it keeps the listener. Oh, they're angry about this. Oh, they're sad about that. They're anxious about this. Oh, they're happy about that. And AI can't do that. Correct. Right. Yeah. And so this notion of just reading, I always tell people like, well, you just read it out loud. I'm like, really, would you want to sit for 10 hours and hear someone just mutter through this stuff? <laughs> Is that entertaining? You know, and then they start to get it from there. You know, I. it's one of those things when you're at the hotel bar, or at the airport bar, you know, having a sandwich or a beer, waiting for your flight. And someone says, so what do you do? And I tell them, it either gets this, wow, that's really cool. Or like, they pay you money to do that? Yeah. You know, it can't just AI do it now? I'm like, you know, fuck you. Anyway. The... <laughs> <laughs> well, I no, mean, it can't. It, they I can, can but te- I mean, technology has come a long way, but it, there's just, there's the human voice whether it's that little quiver in a, in a certain word the the nuances and the pacing and the cadence there's there it's the, know, it's the unknown factor the chaos yeah. factor of the human yeah and and being able to express emotions the the ai stuff is never going to be able to do that and if it does we're fucked <laughs> well no it won't and I'll, I'll, I'll give you another area that ai can't touch ai does not have a sense of humor or irony or sarcasm Mm. and never will because for you to have that you have to have somebody behind the ai making that artistic call and they have to have the artistic sensibility to alter the language or the nuance of the melody rhythm and tempo of a sentence so we hear the joke or hear the irony that's a level of refinement that an audio you know a, some other person who's not a performer is going to do no computer program could do that because the, the nuance is not there and and, and this is, you know, I, I, I saw one of my students, Mike Cooper, was in a Washington Post article that just came out talking about AI. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there's AI is going to take over some things. I'm, I, I, I foresee low cost, e, you know, e-learning or cheap corporate stuff. They don't want to spend the money. Okay, fine. But there is no, in the world of audiobooks, there are no fans out there of audiobooks clamoring for computers. There's no authors clamoring for it. Maybe some people, you know, at the audiobook companies might want to have it to cut costs, but it's it's fanciful. What it really is to me is a bunch of people sitting around a boardroom at Amazon going, you know what? Jeff needs another yacht. Yeah. That's it. I don't know anybody in the I don't really I don't know anyone from all the articles I've said, I've yet to hear. Anyone goes, my God, I cannot wait to hear the new Stephen King novel done by a computer. You know, I can't wait to hear the new uh, Nicholas Taleb uh, book on randomness and and chaos theory done by a machine. No one is saying that. It's a it's a solution in search of a problem. 
Yeah. You Cost know. seems to be the more uh, conversation yeah. piece as far as, it, and even from the authors, it's hilarious right. because the authors will be the first one to get on the, the, the soapbox of sorts regarding how much time it takes and to do all this and the cost effective with it. And, and then, you know, someone not reviewing it um, and things like that, but they're the first one to also be like, well, I want him an audio. And the only because it's so expensive and I want it. So this is what I'm going to resort to. And I'm like, stop going to Starbucks five times a day and just, you know, save the well, money or so, those other venues. So here's the thing. You know, there was a this is several months ago. There was a back and forth on one of our narration groups. An author had gotten angry with the narration group and said, screw this. I'm going to my next book is only going to come out in, in, in through AI artificial intelligence right um and uh it's funny my um my partner anna clements uh she hates the word ai she wants to say artificial intelligence to remind people she has an accent artificial. she can say anything she wants <laughs> that's right she's got a wonderful british rp <laughs> yes and so anna's like she goes she says you know like look you have to remind them it's artificial and it's all well and good to try to save pennies but if no one buys the audiobook you've just wasted that money too you know there's there's a lot of issues around retention rates with artificial intelligence. But again, because it, it's it's such a subtle thing that since AI doesn't have an opinion, it doesn't alter the read enough so I can really hear what the author's trying to say. Yeah. The and message is lost. It's being penny wise and pound foolish. You know? And there's no... I, I, people, my students, I have to talk them off the ledge all the time. I'm like, look, AI is not taking my job anytime soon. Yeah, this no. No, I mean, they were uh, they were a little bit excited for some of the authors and I'm going, just wait. And I was sitting back. I, I always say I like to sit in the corner and just wait until something happens. And I'm going to be like, cheers, told you, motherfucker. Um, because uh, you know, it's like when you see it, it, it's like when you see a cartoon. That's done by computer with a jaggedy movement or something that's been hand drawn. It, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, yeah, they're both cartoons and one cost a lot less than this one. But which one was ultimately more entertaining and that's the only yardstick that matters it really is if, and i always and i i've had this conversation with authors too and my response is if it didn't sell then you weren't pushing it hard enough yes that's the other that's thing i have with them mm -hmm. yeah. well they, they were all about do. it until ai started doing i can write a novel and i'm an ai so they're like now oh, it's, yeah, now now it's they in get, their yeah. world and they're going <laughs> hell fuck no i'm like wait 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 weren't you okay with it when it was the yeah. audiobook narrators, but now it's you and they're not doing it. But it's true. A lot of the authors, and I love them dearly. And they, you know, in some cases they push them. And it's, you know, I always say there's a, you have to work and promote it and pimp it out. But they're over the no knowledge that sometimes it's luck, right? You can oh, do yeah. all this there's, work behind there's, it. There's and, an yeah. yeah. You, you know, I, you know, we, in the theater, we used to say it takes just as much effort and, and blood, sweat, and tears to create a good play as it does a bad play. You just never know when you start a collaborative process. And and, and I know that a lot of artists or want, you know aspiring artists don't want to hear this, but there is an element of luck in what we do. You you know, if you write the right, I mean, who knew like way back in the day that Anne Rice writing those vampire novels was going to hit, but it did. And it was it was a cultural phenomenon back in the 80s, right? And the, but but there was something it just hit the right zeitgeist at the time and, and that they were well written and it exploded or Harry Potter or whatever. Right. And so 
but you can you can help that along. I know that a lot of artists I've dealt with, whether they're actors or authors or narrators, they say, "Well, I just want to I just want to do my thing. I just want to narrate. I just want to write." I'm like, "Fine, if you just want to do that, then don't expect to necessarily make any money. This is a hobby, then. But if you really want to do it and make a living at it, you it's always the business side in arts that will make or break it. Always, you know." I have friends who are film actors, you know, I've known for a long time and by their own admission, they will say talent wise, I'm okay, mediocre, okay. But where they excel is the business end, the networking, the follow-up, being in the right place at the right time. And they've built entire careers doing it that way. And so when, yeah, when I hear an author complain about, you know, the audiobook and so on, I'm like, did you do podcast interviews? Did you do a virtual press tour? Mm-hmm. You know, how hard did you push the sales for this well, and the book itself? Or the very basic of listing it on on the list of links when you're talking about the book or mentioning mm-hmm. that it's in Whisper Sync and you know it's it's on sale or stuff like that. Those little minor things, it's it's the kind of conversation I've had with clients. And that and when I do my consulting, is that it's like you're forgetting you're you're really working on the ebook and the paperback and you're forgetting about the audio and it's a book it you know it's your story regardless of the right. format you have to all of it because you're different audiences for the different formats and they just they just don't yep. right <laughs> and they they all and those audiences live in different spaces yep they do you know, I had a, I had an author a couple of years ago he was writing a a detective series. And we did the first book and I walked him through about all the promotion he's going to need to do. I gave him, you know, we'll spend a lot of time talking and he ended up hiring a publicist who did like five minutes of work and charged him an arm and a leg and the audiobook didn't sell. And he, he just stopped. He hasn't written the thing since, you know, he's like, well, you know, the book sales and the audiobook were so dismal. And I'm like, how hard did you, put? well, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm like, I don't care. Which do you want to do? The day job you hate, or do you want to pursue this? You know, this is the hustle. This is the hustle that you've got to do. Hustle and the grind. The hustle to me is the exciting thing. The hustle is trying to find a new podcast or uh, a venue to read the book from. Or so that's the hustle. That's the fun thing. The little wins and the grind is the follow up email and keeping track of all that stuff. But they go they they go hand in glove. And if you have you want to have any shot at making the thing successful, you've got to do both. And it's a lot of extra work. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the narrator and the author working together to, you know, push the book? Because there's like old school guard tends to tend to think the narrators have been around for a while that they just get in the booth, read it, get their PHF, uh, you know, pay and they're done. And others are now being more available to do marketing with the author and a basic retweet for fuck's sakes folks is uh oh, yeah, can yeah. help you know so it all depends on it depends on the project it depends on where you're at in your career it depends on your goals so you know i what i advise my students like you know if you're getting into romance romance is this huge universe out there and say with fantasy and sci-fi and i'm like if you really want to go into this genre then you work with the author to find podcasts to be on together to talk about the project. And once you get enough in that particular genre, then you can strike out on your own. You know, oh, we're with, you know, really well-known sci-fi narrator Sean Brad on my sci-fi podcast or whatever. It's just good. It's just good marketing for everybody. You know, when I, so recently I, I did book one of a fantasy series 
uh, Stephen Gulich is his name, uh, the author. And I gave him some ideas about marketing and he really ran with them. I'm really excited to work with him. He's very driven. And so we got onto a podcast called Two to Ramble, the number two to Ramble. And it's these two guys who talk about fantasy books. And uh, they have a, they do it as a, like a YouTube channel. And then they also put it out as an audio. Nice. And so we came on and what did we do? He talked about writing it. I talked about performing it and we, you know, we supported each other in that endeavor. And so, yeah, I think that's smart because even though I, I do nonfiction, I'm known as the nonfiction guy and the nonfiction teacher, I still enjoy doing fiction, you know, if it's well-written and this is stuff is really well-written. And so I want to help promote that for his sake, for the project's sake, so it makes money so we can keep the series going, but also for me, because like I tell my students, I'm like, look, there's going to be another fantasy author who hears me on that show who goes, hmm, I've got this other thing over here. I think Sean would be really good for that. And the next thing I know, another job has fallen in my lap. Yep. So it's, it's, it's mutually beneficial to, to help promote, but, but not with everything, you know, I mean, it also depends on your workload. You know, I narrate, there was a time I narrated 50 books a year. I didn't have time to pursue it. I was just too busy. And now I do about half that, but I also teach full time and narrate. So I, I have to pick very carefully the books I'm willing to spend time on to help promote. And they tend to be private projects, not always. And or I, I feel the writing was exceptional. And the author was a good person. You know, when I reach out to them, they're, they're very friendly and, and open to talking and helping me with the, if I need help for the project. But the majority of my work, you're right. You know, I just don't have time. So I do the, the best job I possibly can. I turn it over to the publisher and then I move on to the next gig. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's having those conversations and figuring out, you know, timing. And, and nowadays with social media, you could be, you know, that, that moment that you're just taking a break. And you're scrolling. Oh, that's my author. Okay, click retweet. That's it. You yes. know, it's just little things. It doesn't have to be this huge, you know, other set of performances too, right? I mean, you can do at least well, one but- podcast versus fifteen. You know, find the time and uh, as far as what is that better return investment for both of you? Well, even even when I can't say pursue podcast interviews or publicity stuff with the author, I'm constantly posting about what I'm working on. You know, and at the very basic, you know, I. I don't have time to do really clever TikTok videos. I just don't have time. Right. So at the very basic, when you see me posting, it's cover a book. Hey, I'm narrating this book by so-and-so for so-and-so for so-and-so. Amazon blurb about the book, a couple of hashtags. But you know what? I get responses. Yes. I get retweets. The yes. Audiophile Magazine, the author, the book publisher, yeah. the audio publisher. And and that's and it, it, it's, it's, it's important to teach the author and or the narrator your your audience in that moment isn't necessarily the fans. Your audience is the book publisher, the audio publisher, the author, and their friends, because that's where the work is. So by tagging the right things, and yes, you want to, you know, d- just the post alone will be enough for the people who follow you. But you're actually really, you want to show the the people who hired you that you're still on the team. Not that you're devoting endless hours to promote it but that you are helping yes exactly thank you for that yeah that's uh the conversation that i've had it's like it doesn't need to be this whole 
big, huge production, you know, retweet yeah. and say, Hey, I, yes, I got cast in this. Can't wait. Yeah. Uh, you know, those little things, it's so meaningful. And as a listener, I'm like, Oh crap, you're going to do that book. Yes. And then I make a note of it. And, and so when it does come out six months from now, I get that note, note in the calendar notification and I'm like, yes, I'm downloading it kind of a thing. I'm just saying like when release day happens, you can do a special note now or it's on pre-order or, you know, and then, like I said, if you do, if you, you know, work with the author and you do a podcast interview, then you social media the hell out of it. You pin it to your, you know, your Instagram page, your Facebook page or whatever. And then you also then put it on your website. You know, I had a student graduate today from my program. It's, it's a long program. It takes over a year to get through because we meet month, once a month and and I'm talking about having a press page. I have a press page on yes. my website. And so it only, it only, you know, I've probably done in the last 10 years, 40 or more interviews of, you know, video like on YouTube or podcasts or written things. And I only have a couple up there. But the point is, is this allows someone who stumbles upon me or is searching for me when they get to my website they can then listen to the recording and they get to know me as a person far beyond before they ever reach out to me, say as an author or a book publisher or a potential student. And th those are evergreen. You can keep them on your site and people get to know you. Yeah. Like, oh, she's the non, you know, she's the romance woman. She's, oh, I love her. And, and I should tell my friend, Mary, who's finishing her romance piece over here that they should get, you know, to call Nancy and then blah, blah, blah. And suddenly Nancy gets a new book. Yeah. And it's and doing things. And I appreciate that too, because as a podcaster, sometimes the guest doesn't share or post that they were a guest and, you know, and, and we don't do it. Oh, for, I know. It blows my mind. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I'm posting about you, you guys being on, on the podcast and I love you and thank you for being here, but can you tweet, you know, help a girl help a girl out. You know, <laughs> my audience That's varies right. from your audience, right? I mean, we right. have two different audiences. So yeah, yeah you're hitting yeah. mine, but you also need to hit yours because the podcast that you did today is different from the podcast that you did with the two ramble podcast and so on and so forth. So people are learning different things and, and hearing you in different ways. The majority of the people who come to me to, to learn uh, narration come from a corporate background. They worked for a company where they did just their little thing, whether they were in IT or sales or management. And they never, and almost none of them are in the marketing or advertising section of that company. So none of this is natural to them. And in fact, for a lot of my students, trying to get them to get onto social media and post is like pulling teeth. And I keep telling them, I said, look, it's the tree in the forest analogy. If you don't tell people what you're doing, yeah, you might as well just be doing it in your garage because it's a hobby. You've got to promote yourself. It's relentless. And I, you don't. You can do it in a way that doesn't feel obnoxious. You're just, you know, when I tell them, like, when I post, I don't say, oh, I'm the best narrator in the world. No, I just say, here's the project I'm working on right now. I think it's really cool. Here's what it's about. And if you're interested, here's the link to go find out more. It's really that simple. But you've got to do it. And, you know, it never fails that I'll I'll have a student who resisted that. They graduate. And then a year or two later, they come back to me for a check-in session because they're stuck. 
their careers are stuck. And I can I'm like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this and this? And, you know, for marketing and advertising. And they're like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, why are you here? You know exactly what to do. Are you have you hired me to t- yell at you for an hour? And frankly, some of them need me to yell at them for an hour. That should be extra you know? charges for that. <laughs> I feel I feel like a you know a sadist or a you know like a dominatrix or whatever, yeah. you know, like like people pay me so I can beat them up. And I'm like, it shouldn't be this hard, guys. It's really simple. If I can learn how to do it, you can. You know? So anyway. No, but it's true. I mean, sometimes people need to hear it. Sometimes yeah. they need someone to have like an accountability partner. Yeah. Sometimes they need Absolutely. a dom, whatever works, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever works. But you started teaching and, you know, you have these courses and what did you decide to become a coach and be a teacher? Because that's another level of commitment yeah. and everything else. So I got into teaching about 27 years ago. So this is in the mid 90s. I graduated with my BFA in acting in 1988. I know I'm ancient. And so, and I went to New York and as a theater actor, and I realized just how much my college, even though I thought it was a great school, how much they didn't prepare me for the business of show business. And I really was caught off guard by the lack of my knowledge, but I wasn't willing to give up. So I took classes in New York, you know, that were private, you know, and I learned, I soaked up as much as I could. And then Around 1996, I had a dinner with the chairman of the department I went to. He was in town in Washington, D.C., auditioning actors. And after a couple of drinks, I sort of laid into him like, you did not prepare me for what I needed to know about being an actor. I said, you, that was, that was a really a shit move you gave. You know, you should have you should have had better classes. He said, well, why don't you come and teach him? I said, well, damn it, I just might. And the next thing I knew, I'm on a damn plane to Santa Fe to teach a month long class in the business of show business. And that's where it started, although it scared the hell out of me. But I realized in the end, you know, I was just, I was teaching something I, I did all the time. So it wasn't like I was making it up. Right. So I began originally teaching classes in the mid Atlantic region at colleges and universities and with actor groups, say from New York down to the Carolinas and then into the interior, like all the way out to Pittsburgh and Columbus. And I'd go into and I would teach them about, you know, agents and headshots and resumes. And when people found out that I was doing audiobooks, they said, would you do an audiobook class? And that sort of led into doing that, where I would do like a Saturday and, you know, I would teach technique in the morning and then I'd have an engineer come in the afternoon and talk about, um, you know, how to set up a studio or something like that. And I did those up and down, but those are a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get the space and the caterer and the pay everybody and the collect the money and all that stuff. And so about eight years ago, I wanted to take a break from that. And because around the same time, I kept getting people pestering me like, do you coach? And at that time, I was still doing a book a week and I didn't have any extra time for anything else. And I said, no. But when I made the shift to say, I don't want to do this many workshops, I said, okay. And so... I sort of, you know, did some, you know, one-on-one like performance coaching and, but I wasn't satisfied with that style of coaching. Um, and I, I did a lot of research about what kind of coaches were out there, the coaching style. And it's, it seemed to me that the majority of coaches were what you call tactical coaches, meaning they do correction in the moment. 
it's like hiring a golf pro to help you with your swing. They're going to be right there on the green with you, working with you. But I, when I realized I wanted to teach, and that was the other thing, I realized no one was teaching nonfiction audiobooks. And it was now my specialty as a performer. And as the saying goes, don't try to be better than the other guy. Be different. Yep, find so your niche. So I said, right. And I said, this is my niche. And so I was going to be the nonfiction audiobook coach. And then I wanted to add in a business track to teach my students actually how to do it for real. And so I realized that was far too complex to teach tactically on the fly. So I built a curriculum and I became what's called a strategic coach. So when a student works with me, it's like going back to college for a year. So we meet once a month for 14 months, for 14 lessons over, you know, usually a year or so. And there's a definite curriculum and they get a, you know, every lesson, there's a lesson in technique and a lesson in business. And that fits, that fits my personality. You know, I, I remember talking with my father when he was alive and when I was in the middle of setting this up and he said, build a program that you would want to study in. Yeah. Let that be the yardstick. What kind of program do you want? Don't listen to, don't try to be like anybody else. What do you want? And I said, I want to, you know, this kind of curriculum driven with these two, you know, nonfiction and business together. They said, then that's what you build. And then of course it was just a matter of, you know, when I started, I think I had four lessons and then six and then eight then 10. And now it's up to 14. And each one is a unique lesson. And, but it's taken me several years to build each one. So yeah, so the the impetus initially was sort of, I got into teaching on a dare <laughs> <laughs> and discovered I really enjoyed it. it. I really do enjoy it. It's There's something very paternal about it. I refer to my students as my kids, even though some of them are old enough to be my parents. I really root for them because it's a hard program. I made it difficult. I made it challenging. And the washout rates at 40%, not everybody gets through. But the ones that really hang in there, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for them the whole time. I, I bend over backward to help them as much as I can. You know, they have to do the heavy lifting. I All I can do is show them the path. And then they, they have to do that. But it's so immensely satisfying when a, a student, you know, recently I at the SOVAS Awards, I had several students who had been nominated in the same categories I was nominated in. And I was so excited. I was so, so happy yeah, to see where great. they started and how far they've gone. Yeah, no, I was thrilled. And at the Audis too. You know, I didn't get a nomination for the Audis this year. That's okay. I had plenty of students who did, and I was rooting for all of them. Yeah, you know, and it's it, I do it. I feel very very paternal about the people mm -hmm. who get through the program. Yeah, I mean, when when it comes down to learning, I think sometimes people think, oh, I need to take the least hard, you know, or the or either whether you're trying to do the curriculum and you're the teacher or you're the um the student trying to learn something. It needs to be difficult, otherwise, and and difficult in the sense of the information that's being done, not difficult in the how to get access to the damn thing, because uh, that's a right. different conversation. But you need to be intrigued. You need to be challenged because otherwise you're not learning. I, I could Google it by myself and to yeah, the, I'm yeah. going to become a SME to a point, but I'm going to be extra good. I'm going to need that challenge. And that's where you guys and, as coaches and teachers come in. And just to be clear, there is there's a place for tactical coaching as well as Absolutely. strategic. They, they both have their place depending on what the student needs. So when I'm, you know, I do a free consultation with people who are interested in at the end of it, I'm like, okay, now I want you to go away for three or four days and think about this again. Am I the right person for what you want? 
you may just want a tactical coach. And I can recommend some people for you that I know, you know, colleagues of mine who are really good coaches. But if you want this kind of coaching, then this is what I can offer. And and sometimes people say, yeah, you know what? I realize I need this other kind. I'm like, that's fine. You know, go off and do that. But ironically, it's interesting that the majority of my students, you know, I'm a very type A personality. And the majority of my students are type A person. They really respond well to structure, curriculum, homework. And uh, they, 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 the same thing, they like to have that and to be self-driven to learn. Because as you well know, ultimately, this is an extremely isolating profession, solitary. And if you don't have the, the, the focus and perseverance to narrate a 20-hour audiobook all by yourself in a booth, you know, eat the elephant, right? It's eating the elephant. And you're the only one allowed to eat the elephant. <laughs> and and so if you don't have that kind of, and that's a, that shows that you're a self-starter and a finisher. You have yeah. to be. You have to get the whole book. And so, so I know that sometimes I have people who come up to me, like I was at VO Atlanta recently, and you know, they people would introduce, oh, you're Sean Pratt. And they're like, I'd love to take your course, but I don't think I could do a curriculum. You know, I I'm I like to do the 30 or 60 second ads and then go home. I'm like, that's fine. You know, yeah. audiobooks are not for everybody. They're sort of the when it comes to the pay and the amount of time, audiobooks tend to be the ugly redheaded stepchild of voiceover, you know. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. People don't realize that. Um, and which is why I also love your video that you did about like, you want to be a narrator, get in the closet for how long and see if you, yeah, that video and no lie. Yes. I've had people come up to me and say, Hey, I know that you, you know, work with narrative and stuff like that. I've been told I have a good voice and I'm like, here's a link. And it's to that exact video. I'm like, come talk to me after yeah. you do that <laughs> because you can pass the test. Yes. yes. Then come back because they think it's really easy mm -hmm. and it's not. No, it's not. And having, I mean, yes, having a voice is nice, but the truth is, is it's about storytelling and about temperament. You know, first the temperament, can you do it by yourself? But then a storytelling ability. I have students who have very unique voices and they still do very well in their careers. And it's, it's funny too, because I, I'll have people come who want to work with me and they say, do, do you ever, and you can tell they're very nervous. They will go, do you ever tell someone that they can't be a narrator after a couple of lessons that they're not going to make it? And I'm like, no, the students will self-select out. They'll realize this is too hard or this is a lot more moving parts or it's requiring more of my time than I realized. But I learned even when I was in school, you never, you should never second guess a student. They'll surprise you again and again Absolutely. with their commitment or not. You know, I, you know, I remember in college, there was a, a student ahead of me who was going to be the next, you know, big thing as a playwright and an actor, he graduates and he blew up in six months and he went back home and he, you know, he did, it was too much for him. And then there was a young girl behind me who didn't really do a lot of work, you know, like at the big plays at the, at the main stage. She went off with her husband and they started their own theater company for 25 years. You know, you never judge. I don't judge a student. They will either, they're going to realize what's involved very quickly. And the test is part of it. Yeah. And it's, but it's also good to have that support system from, from the, the instructor and the coach and the teacher that kind of gives you that, like, okay, I can, it's hard right now. It sucks, but I'm going to get through it. <laughs> you know? Oh it's yeah. Needed. You know, I, I always, I always tell them, I said, if you want to hear how far you've gone, 
just go back and listen to the first recording I had you do. Mm, yep. You know, and you're going to hear that performance with new ears. It, it's, you're going to hear the nuance of where, oh, I should have done this there. And, oh, I missed that bit there or whatever, you know, because now they have a, they have the experience of the program and the, and the nomenclature to describe what they do. It's not just reading aloud. It's so much more complex than that. It is. And once again, one more reason why I'm not afraid of artificial intelligence. True. You have um, a bit of a partnership with uh, Johnny Heller in some of the coaching and workshops that you guys do. How did that partnership <laughs> kind of start? You guys are hilarious online, though. I mean, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we met a long time ago and we were just talking about this the other day. We can't remember when we first met. It's been a long time. And we were both doing our own thing. It's also with Scott Brick. Scott's sort of yep. our race amigos. We, uh, and we tend to, you know, like, Scott produces stuff on the West Coast, Johnny sort of on the East Coast, and every so often I might do something in the middle. But, you know, uh, I like Johnny. We hit it off immediately because we are so different personality-wise. We couldn't be more different. We're like Penn and Teller, practically, except both of us talk all the damn time. There's no quiet partner. Johnny is unstoppable. He's got a hell of a drive. He's extremely smart. He's also really profane. And that's one of the things I love about it. You know, he we tell the most inappropriate jokes when we're oh, not teaching, right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and, and, but he's, he's, he's whip smart. He's extremely talented and he's driven. He really, he also really loves teaching. He likes doing the workshops. And so, uh, you know, we, um, I'm trying to think. I think our, oh, it's been so long. We did a workshop earlier together through, I think, a third party. And then soon after, I invited him to London to do a workshop I was doing there to do the fiction section. And that's when we hit on the idea, like, we should do the fiction, nonfiction tag team. And then we just went off. And, and now, of course, his wife, Joanna Perrin, who's an amazing narrator, she also teaches. And now jo uh, Anna Clements, my partner, She's starting to do more. And, you know, like, you know, like with Joanna has a perspective as a performer. She does a lot of nonfiction and Anna does a lot of nonfiction fiction, but she also brings in uh, one of the things I like about what Anna does is she talks about those touchy feely issues about, you know, uh, imposter syndrome and staying positive and, 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 overcome. and those things are real, really important issues that, most coaches don't touch and so that she brings in, but back to Johnny and I. Yeah. So in fact, we're getting ready to do a workshop in, in June in Virginia, Fredericksburg. And, and we, you know, we pick a couple of places every year and then he has his, his workshops. He does, you know, he produces them himself and we just really get along. We make a good, we make a good team. We yeah, really you, do. You guys and, were here uh, in Orlando. We're, we're Good. Yes. Yeah, you guys were here and I was so bummed. I could not, have, I, I was not able to sign up or so anything. We, and so yeah. we're thinking about next year, I think coming back to Miami or Orlando. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, we try to, you know, like next year, I think we're looking at like Orlando, Nashville, uh, Seattle or Portland, you know, but, you know, we have, he has a lot of standalone things like his Splendiferous workshop around APAC or his Northeast uh, narrator retreat and i and so he has me on board and i come in i'm part of the bigger group but yeah no we in fact we were talking today 
uh, you know, about the next the next thing. But yeah, we just I never would have imagined that we, our personalities just fit really, really well. And we're really close as mm -hmm. friends now. Yeah, it, it looks like you guys have fun when you guys are together and teaching. <laughs> oh, then yeah. It oh, also yeah. makes people want to say, okay, so I'm going to get all this stuff information, but I'm also going to, it's not going to be robotic. It's not going to be, there's going to be more oh, personalities no, no, and things fun. like that and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's it's nice. We haven't, although we, because of COVID, we've been put off at, uh, it's also fun when Scott Brick. Mm -hmm. Brick gets involved and the three of us do something together. Then oh, it's, boy. it's hijinks and soup. Jesus, and, I can um, imagine the three of you together. Fuck. Yeah, we, we have a really good time. <laughs> three of us. Yeah. Uh, because once again, we all, each of us brings something very unique. Our, our personalities are very different, but they just gel. And it works. Mm -hmm. It just works. So, yeah, no, I love Johnny to pieces. That's great. And it's almost like a joke, you know, Scott Briggs, Sean Pratt, and Johnny Heller could then come into a bar uh, and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> that narrated my voice because I yes. saw billing. To yes. See okay. That. Perfect. I'll <laughs> <laughs> have, have you record that one. <laughs> yeah, I do. It, 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 yeah, it's been great because, you know, this world has such a wide range of opportunities that I really, truly feel that it's a disservice when we're in high school and you're like, what do you be, what do you want to be when you grow up? This is never discussed. None of this is, it's always oh, no, doctor, no, it's, you know, all these uh, great, you know, you know, you know it is such a, it's a, it's a very niche thing. I mean, it's more about if you, you have to want to be a performer of some kind. And so you may study acting or singing or dancing or whatever. Uh, but a lot of my students, they have they they did some of that in high school, and then they went and got a quote real job, yep. got married, had a family, and now they want something else. And so that desire to perform propels them back, but they they don't have they can't afford to do theater. Um, trying to do film really means going to New York or L.A. And they and all of them right down the line, of course, are avid readers. And that's really the crucial because if you're not an avid reader, why would you ever want to be an audience? Oh my reader, God. For sake? Yeah. But but if, and, even the even in the side of the industry where it comes like sound engineering, uh photographer for book covers, graphic design work for book covers, all yeah. these things are not discussed. And I think now the conversations are starting to happen a little bit more and opening that range. But also, you know, as you were saying, after quote unquote adult job we're like fuck that shit i'm going back to the arts <laughs> and it was fun <laughs> oh yeah you know it's you know you i have a student who's a retired airline pilot mm -hmm. and he was like i want to narrate books so he got himself some equipment he narrated like five or six books before he ever contacted me about coaching he just said i want to do it mm -hmm. you know i'm retired now i love books i like reading and i thought i'll give it a go and i like that kind of spirit that kind yeah. of let me just see what happens. Yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I, and, and what's nice about the industry is I think I want to say I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was like 60,000 books were produced last year. Probably, in the whole industry. Probably around and, that. It's a big number. So it's probably accurate. Who knows? And, <laughs> and it's growing at this, you know, geometric curve. And once again, people are worried about AI. I'm like, I'm not, I'm like, there's a t what's nice about this, even though there's lots of people getting in, there's still tons of work to be done. And and part of that, too, as a narrator, if you want to, you know, it's knowing your niche. Now, don't, and there can be a difference. This is something I have to teach students all the time is that 
there's the work you would like to narrate and the work you get hired to narrate. And sometimes that Venn diagram, those two circles don't cross over. So, you know, you, you have to, if you're going to, you know, if you, once again, though, that gets back to your goals, because if you want to do this, maybe one book a month, you can be a little more picky about what you do. But if you're trying to make a living at it, you become a bit of a journeyman carpenter, as it were. You do a little of everything that comes your way. Um, but I tell them, don't shut anything off. You may not like, you don't don't knock it till you try it. You may discover you love Westerns or cozy mysteries that you never thought you would like to do, and suddenly you do. And that just becomes one more genre you can work in beyond the other ones you like. But sometimes you have people, for instance, I had a student, she, she had this very, very high first soprano voice, very young sounding. Her personal favorite material to read her own were like those graphic serial killer true crime novels. Okay. You know, she liked she liked to watch those documentaries on Netflix kind of thing. Yep. And she oh, I really want to do them. I said, I hate to tell you this. You will never do one of those books. If they want a true a true crime novel is a heavy topic. They're going to want a heavy voice for it. And she was crestfallen. I said, but think of all the you know murder mysteries you or the mysteries you could do as a young adult in the young adult fiction category. And she gave it a try, and sure enough, she liked it. Yeah. So like I said, there's the work you might want to narrate, but the work you get hired for, and sometimes those two things don't overlap. Yeah. And that's a hard lesson to learn for some people. It is, but it's also really great that you have that conversation with the students because sometimes they don't know that they have that alternative option that kind of still fits within yeah. what they like to do. So that's always great too. Well, it's, it's an honest conversation. I always feel my job as a coach is to tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. It's you appreciated. Know, it's like when I have to berate a student for not posting about their books, and yet they're pissing and moaning about not, you know, being stuck on ACX and not, or not getting enough work. And I'm like, you're not even advertising the work you're doing. You know, why are you complaining? You, you're you're doing this to yourself. That's our conversation, but it has to be it has to be done if they're if you. Like I said, I want to help them. And sometimes helping them, you have tough love involved in that. Yeah, but it's, it's good that you're providing it and that hopefully they'll listen because that's that's on them if they listen. The, the fact that you as an instructor and teacher and coach are providing it, that's what's important. Uh, sometimes I feel that's missing in some in, in, in a lot of things, not just in this world. So when it comes down to teaching. I wish I, I wish I knew, you know, I only know what other coaches do secondhand. You know, I've heard, you know, for some coaches, they do amazing, amazing work. And some, it feels like it's a little hit or miss because the coach might be scattered as a person or or have another agenda. You know, like there are those, I hate to say it, you know, there's this is show business. There's a lot of people who advertise as coaches who are just, you know, giving you the minimum. And then you always oh, sign up for my super duper secret class over here now and you get this thing over here for this price over here. And you know, I don't, I don't really think too highly of those people. <laughs> so, Neither do um, I. We have those in every industry, whether it's marketing, you yeah, know, true. promotions and stuff like that. Yeah. We're like, mm -hmm, yep, go ahead, go for them. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so, you know, I keep a mental list of those people to try to make sure my students don't fall into that. Yeah. Or, or you know, I'll have a new student come in and say, oh, I studied with so-and-so and I felt it was not worth my time and money, which is one of the reasons I since I, since I began coaching and doing classes, I always had this thing I call my my no kidding guarantee. And I always tell people like, if you take a workshop or a coaching session with me and you think it was a waste of your time, 
I'll give you a refund. No kidding. No questions asked. And, you know, in 20 some odd years, I think I've had three people, four people ask for their money back just because it, they, they realized they wanted something different from what I had to offer. And it was fine. You know, I stand by what I teach. I know it works and I want to help people. So I think that's a good, a good ethos to, to be a coach by. Yeah. It's also knowing your self-worth, you know, and that takes, I know for us, some of us, it's hard, um, but I'm glad that, you know, you have yours because that makes you also a better teacher. So thank you for that. So when you're not working as teaching and coaching and, you know, workshops and narrating, what do you do for fun? Um, I go see my kids. Uh, Noah's 32 and Lily's 22. They live on the East Coast because I live in the middle of the country. Um, so I go out and see them. That's always fun. I sketch. I'm a, I, I sketch. I've always drawn. I picked it up as a kid and I used to do it all the time, you know, in the green room at the theater. So I sketch all the time and I often put sketches up on my social media platforms. I'm an avid recumbent bicycle enthusiast. Uh, I play my guitar. And, and I like to travel with Anna. So pretty simple stuff, you know, nothing too extravagant. I'm not one of those thrill seekers. I, I just sort of like to take in the atmosphere, you know, like hike in the desert or go to the beach or whatever. But not jumping yeah, out of planes. Pretty, no, no. And, <laughs> and usually those efforts are tend to be very quiet because I talk all the freaking time. You know, people people ask me like, do you ever listen to your, your books you narrate? And I said, I would rather take a beating than listen to my own voice. It's, it has to be a very special reason for me to go back and listen to something. But yeah, when I'm not teaching or narrating, it's sketching, biking, you know, see, you know, uh, I, I'm always, I'm always down to go to a great Gothic cathedral here in England. And, you know, I love things like that. So it's more about those kinds of simple experiences that I enjoy. Yeah. Oh, I know that before we officially started, you were mentioning about writing. Did you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I've written one book called To Be or Wanna Be, the top 10 differences between a successful actor and a starting artist, starving artist, available on Amazon in book and <laughs> audiobook form. Thank you very much. And so I'm getting, I'm gearing up to write a new nonfiction piece. The working title I have is called No exclamation point so it's, it's no a freelancer's guide to turning down work and it's based on a workshop i've done for well over 20 years that teaches freelancers whether you're an actor a, a, a carpet you know a freelance you know um musician or someone who i don't know who works freelance about developing a series of questions to find out what are your goals? What do you want out of the potential job before you ever start negotiating? And um, it's wrapped around what I call the three magic questions. Anytime I'm offered a job, I ask myself, what will it do for my career? Will I make any money? And will I have any fun? And then the, the class I taught drills down into the nuances of those questions. Uh, so you, there's it's there's a lot more moving parts behind those three questions than people realize. And so it helps someone come up with the list of their needs and wants for the negotiation. And so I'm turning that into a book right now. And then um, and then believe it or not, after that, I, I'm planning on writing a steampunk 
uh, piece of fiction, sort of a detective fiction piece, because why not? Not. You know? <laughs> no, <that laughs> you know, like, I've been wanting to, yeah, it's banging around in my head. And mm -hmm. and then after that, I have a, a, a like a thriller horror piece about a narrator uh, who accidentally gets a book where they have magical spells and incantations that as they record them, they're actually casting the spells and what oh they can do God. with their life. And, so it's sort of a Stephen King meets, you know, some fantastical thing. So these are buzzing in my head. And I, it really speaks to, um, I think it speaks to being a creative person that at the end of it, you have to, you have to be willing to keep upping the ante for yourself. You know, you need a new mountain to climb. So theater was that for a long time, then film and television, and then audio books, and then now teaching and now what's the next step? I mean, I suppose I could be a teacher for the rest of my life and, and narrate, and that's good enough, but it's not. I need something else to, to, to up the ante for myself, to keep growing. And it seems that that's what's interesting me now. So that's where I'm headed. Yeah. It's um going to add to your career, going to make you some money, and it's going to be fun. So, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know how much money it's going to make me, but it's going to be fun. And it's going to, I think it's going to help my career just to be, you know, be more, a more well rounded person. Yeah. Um, and if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, lucky. that's where the luck is. Yep. There's a lot of great fiction and nonfiction out there yes. that never quite sits. And that's okay. I'm still going to write my books. Good. Yeah. I think you have to kind yeah. of have that vision of it's okay and still continue to write yes. if it's a passion yeah yeah so one of the things yeah. i'd love to do with my guests is um play a game of two truths and a lie where you tell us three things about yourself and we try to figure out which one's the lie and also you know discover how good of a liar you are um, <laughs> or in your case acting <laughs> okay the first one was i once was in a disney movie where i got to work with sir ben kingsley opposite him just the two of us in a one-on-one -on -one scene for this film we were the only two actors for the whole day so I spent my entire day working a scene with Ben Kingsley and uh, he was he took me under his wing it was a very strange moment because when you play opposite a celebrity in a movie or a play it's very easy to get all fanboy and suddenly you can't break out of the fact that, Oh my God, this is Nicole Kidman, which I also played opposite with. And you're like, this person is, I'm freaking out. And then you can't act and then you blow the scene. And so in that case, you have to go, this is just another actor. We're working the scene in this movie. And that's how I got through it. So that's the first thing. That's the first potential. The second one is, I once accidentally peed on a rattlesnake. I lived in New Mexico out near a town called Madrid, which is an old coal mining town south of Santa Fe. And uh, it was the summer of 1990. And I was a carpenter helping uh, a man build a house up the way in the near the mesa where I lived. My girlfriend, Karen, had gone to New York to get us an apartment. We were moving there to start our careers. She was going to be a writer and I was going to be a theater actor. And on this particular night in the middle of the summer, we had celebrated uh, working on the house and uh, the crew, we got steaks and beers and lots of tequila. And <laughs> I stumbled back to my house I was living in in this desert. 
And it was a it was a real in the middle of nowhere place. We had, it was solar powered. It had an outhouse. You know, you had to truck in your water and so on. And in the middle of the night, I had to go to the bathroom. And so I stumbled out in my flip flops and that was it because it's 70 degrees in the middle of the night and my nearest neighbor is half a mile away. And I lean on my truck and I look up at the moon and I go, I start to pee and I hear suddenly a noise. And I look down and I'm peeing right on a rattlesnake. And so uh, I had to roll over the hood of the truck and fall over the other side to get away from him and then ran inside the house. <laughs> My goodness. Lost a flip-flop in that, by the way. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's, number, <laughs> that's number two. <laughs> and then number three, uh, in Washington, D.C., it's a, it's actually when you count Baltimore and D.C. as one film market, it's actually quite big. Uh, when I was there in the 90s, it was the third or fourth largest film market in the country. And one of the staples, if you were a film actor in that area, was doing industrial training films. So you would, uh, you know, like, you know, welcome to Comcast. I'm here to show you your 401k options or whatever, you know, it's, it's in training films for internal usage and so on. And I had a security clearance through the CIA to allow me to do work for them. And that opened a lot of doors to do other security, like training films for like the FBI, uh, the national intelligence, you know, community and the secret service. So I got hired to play like the new secret service guy in this training film where they were showing the new guy, the elements of, you know, getting on board with the detail for the president. Okay. And we shot segments of it at the white house. And the only reason I could be there was of course I had the clearance. And so I come in and we're filming. We were filming for several days in different parts. You know, the White House is quite big. It's underground, above ground, and in the back. And at one point, we're doing this scene and we're playing the scene and the stuff. And suddenly I hear this voice behind me like, how are you guys doing? And I froze and I turned around and there was President Obama standing four feet away from me. He had, was coming through and he stuck his head in to see what was going on. And then he walked in and the next thing I know, I'm having a conversation with the president. And um, I was a big supporter of President Obama. And uh, I was just like, you know, there he is. It seemed, you know, it, it, for a while you, you lose, oh, I'm in the White House. But after a while, it's just a set. You're working and doing things, you're filming. And then suddenly there's the guy. So those are my two truths and a lie. Ooh, okay. <laughs> What kind of prize do I win if I fool you? That's the real question. Oh, see, <laughs> I, my track record is pretty good, though. There's only been a handful, okay. I think, in the years I've been doing this that I've been able to, that, you know, you guys have fooled me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> you got to win first. You gotta yeah, win you got to win right. first. Yep. <laughs> I want to say that um, playing Offset uh, Sir Ben Kinsley is a lie. It's the truth. Oh, okay. The uh, the uh, movie is um, by Disney called Tuck Everlasting. And the rattlesnake is also a true story. President Obama was the lie. Mm, okay. Was the whole thing a lie or part of that only a lie? 
Uh, no, I've never, I never shot in the White House, oh, although wow. I did do films. I did films all over the, the DC area, but I never mm-hmm. worked in the White House. Okay, cool. Good. All right. Yes. Yep. So now yeah. you have to buy me a drink sometime. Yes, totally. Yes. We'll totally get you a drink. Yes. And I was actually going to suggest that I'm like, I'll get you a drink. <laughs> Your choice. <laughs> when, we, when we go to, we'll be at one place together for sure you know, in our world and stuff, but that was good. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think what stumped me was you were really smooth on the, on the white house story and you kind of got a little like excited. Oh my God. And then you were a little like trying, it almost sounded like you were trying to figure out what to say with the Disney movie a little bit there. That's what, that's what that, that stumped me. That's what that was. Oh, I see. Yeah. But yeah, Yeah, no. So, so we shot in a graveyard all night. Just wow. the two of us, wow. and he's what I think his character is called like the man in the yellow hat or something. Mm-hmm. And I played a priest, oh, and wow. um, yeah, we filmed. It was an amazing experience. I was like two thousand one. I shot that or two thousand somewhere in there. Yeah, and look um, it up. yeah, Tuck Everlasting. Yep, and yeah, so you have to trust me on the rattlesnake, though. Yeah, no, that one I, I there, there was, yeah, that one I'm going, yeah, that one very possible. Yep. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's uh, out there in the middle of nowhere, you just don't know. I mean, even yeah. here in Florida, we don't, we're not in the middle of nowhere, but we just don't know <laughs> because <it's> Florida. <laughs> we're like, what will I see when I get outside the front door? <laughs> there you go. I've seen those pictures of alligators at the front door. Oh it yeah, scares the hell out of me. Oh yeah, and uh, and here in Orlando we have boars, uh, bears. We have some, you know, cat species that are really big. I don't know what they are. You know, panthers. All wow. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And not just on. And then on, we have eagles and hawks and all that fun stuff. So yeah, always fun here in Florida. <laughs> but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on and what's coming up next for you? Well, right now I'm taking a little break from recording to work on my new book. I'll still be coaching. I have a hundred students on my roster, so I can't really ever take a big break from that anymore. Um, I've got a few uh, projects in the works. I've got some interesting nonfiction pieces uh, for the summer that I'll be doing. Uh, I, some of them are NDA, so I can't really talk about them. Um, but they are—they're—they're they're really interesting titles. I've got a, a workshop I'll be doing with Johnny in June, and then. Um, I think I'm going to go down to the One Voice Conference in Dallas, not to teach, but to, uh, I'll be with Anna while she's teaching. Um, But the next big seminars or workshops I'm doing will probably be in the fall. I'll be going to the New England Narrators Retreat with Johnny Heller. Uh, I'll be at MAVO, uh, that's in in Washington, D.C., the Mid-Atlantic Voiceover Conference to teach. And um, in the meantime, there's, there's, you know, sketches to make and bike, you know, miles to tick off on my bicycle. Nice. That was uh, fun. I mean, and the traveling and writing yeah. and all that fun stuff. You have a busy schedule, but a lot of it is fun. So that's always good. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being part of this year's audiobook loving series and being my guest. I appreciate you. No, thank you for having me. Yeah. And everyone, thank you for hanging out with us today. And we hope that you've enjoyed this chat as well as the series. Uh, make sure to follow Sean on social media. I will be including all the links so you can find him so you guys don't have to go hunting for them. And that will be over on the landing page of the audiobook loving series at vivianaenchantressofbooks.com. And until next time, happy listenings. 
Visit today's episode post to listen to sound clips of some of the books we discussed and enter the month-long giveaway. If you enjoyed the Audiobook Lovin' Podcast series and you want more, join the Audiobook Lovin' Podcast Patreon for early access to podcasts, exclusive content like the Would You Rather game and dinner party guests, and additional incentives such as bloopers, graphics, and much more. Support the podcast by becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash audiobooklovin'. Thank you for joining Viviana and her guests for this podcast, and we hope you tune in again as we continue to celebrate Audiobook Month. The Audiobook Lovin' series is hosted by Viviana, the Enchantress of Books. Please make sure to visit the main page linked within the post to learn more about the entire Audiobook Lovin' series and the enchanting author and narrator guests who have joined us over the years. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a review wherever you listened. And please follow us on social media platforms and subscribe to the Viviana the Enchantress of Books newsletter. Until next time, happy listening. Audiobook Lovin' hopes you have enjoyed this program.